Don't Come Back from the Moon. It's set in a community of Maple Rock, Michigan, which is just outside of Detroit, and it's the story of the aftermath of an inexplicable event, and that event is in this tight-knit working-class community. Uh, a group of fathers disappears in the, over the course of one summer without much of an explanation, only sort of vague references to the moon. They tell people they're leaving and they're going to the moon. Some of them slip out without telling anybody, and some people sort of use that excuse on their way out of town. And so it's the story of what happens to the town after this mass exodus of fathers. That's writer and 2006 NEA Literature Fellow Dean Bacopoulos talking about the premise of his haunting first novel, Please Don't Come Back from the Moon. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Born and raised in greater Detroit, Dean Bacopoulos easily navigates the worlds of fiction and journalism. Currently a professor in the MFA program in Creative Writing and Environment at Iowa State University, Dean has lectured at Michigan, Cornell, and other universities about the economic and environmental problems facing the post-industrial Rust Belt. He's published related essays and criticism in many publications, including the New York Times Book Review, the Los Angeles Times, and The Believer. He's equally successful at translating these concerns into fiction. His first novel, Please Don't Come Back from the Moon, received critical acclaim and was named a New York Times notable book. In Please Don't Come Back from the Moon, Dean Pacopoulos delivers a piece of fiction that looks at the day-to-day struggles of the working class with an eye that combines a gritty realism with moments of sheer magic. Dean paints a vivid picture of a working-class Michigan neighborhood where, one by one, the men disappear. When 16-year-old Michael's father joins the exodus, Mike and his friends stumble through their adolescence and adulthood, unable to leave the neighborhood their father's long abandoned. I spoke with Dean Pacopoulos recently about Please Don't Come Back from the Moon. I began our conversation by asking him to tell me about his protagonist, Michael. Michael is the narrator of the novel. He's he's 17 when the novel opens up. He turns 17 the summer that his father leaves and goes to this moon. And he is a young kid who wants to get out of Maple Rock, but once his father disappears, he finds himself unable to know what the next move is. He finds himself sort of assuming some of the responsibilities of, quote-unquote, the man of the house, but he also is still pretty immature in the sense he's not sure what he wants to do with his life or how to go about doing it. And so in that sense, I think uh, Michael or Mikey, as his buddies call him, is someone that a lot of people can relate to, being at the age where you sort of know you want to do something different than your family has set up for you, something different than your parents did, but you have no idea of how you're going to go about do that and doing that. One thing I loved about this book is that it actually looks at working-class people and it's not crime fiction. <laughs> That's true. I think there's so much soul in the communities across America where people are really living paycheck to paycheck. There's a lot of art there, but it, they're they're busy. And I think increasingly this is the story of not just isolated communities. This is the story of um, America. I am working on an essay right now called We Are All Working Class Now, which looks at this issue that we've all become paycheck to paycheck people. 
we all are scrambling to keep ourselves afloat, regardless of our education, where we grew up, what our parents did. A huge majority of Americans are now in the same sort of situation where if they lose their livelihood, they have maybe a few weeks to get something else together. And so I do think working class is something we need to look at a little bit differently. Well, let me ask you, I, I do want you to just theorize, you know, or muse for a second about why it is really only in crime fiction that people seem to have jobs that they have to go to and not even forget the money concerns. Nobody else seems to really be working. Yeah, I mean, you see it in, in, in American fiction and American film, too. You see this sort of interest in the lives lives of people of leisure, people who just sort of have a lot of time to think. I think a lot of contemporary American fiction is told from the point of view of people who are not concerned with the day-to-day logistics of living. And uh, uh, Chekhov has a quote where he says something like, that's the stuff that, that wears you out. And something about any idiot can face a crisis. It's the day-to-day living that wears you out. Yeah, I and I right. think that's the sort of thing I, I'm interested in characters is not just how they rise to the occasion of the inexplicable events or the tragedy or the crime, but how do they manage to get by day-to-day when things don't always go the way they are supposed to go? Exactly. You have, for example, a character in the book who works at a bookstore. Mm -hmm. She has a son, Mm -hmm. and she has to do, what is it, wet t-shirt night at the bar to get extra money, and that's what she does. Yeah, she's a character um, named Ella who becomes very significant to Mikey late in the book when he's in his late 20s, um, and she does what she has to do, and one of the things she has to do is there's a hump day honey contest at a local tavern where she has to put on a bikini, but she wins it, and she knows her kid needs to eat, and so it's this sort of resilience of people to do what needs to be done, and to I wanted to portray that with dignity. I didn't want to do it with any level of, of pity. Um, I come from people who do what needs to be done and, and who live paycheck to paycheck, and and I'm still that person, you know, despite having a novel out, you still, I got two kids and a wife who stays home with the kids and we uh, rely on what I bring home. And some, some years we have some money to spend and other years we're on deficit spending, just like most of the country. So it's quite a muse. I mean, the guy who holds your mortgage at the bank, my friend Mike Perry says this, is uh, he's a writer out of Wisconsin. He says his muse is a little bald guy named Joe who holds the mortgage <laughs> to his farm. <laughs> But in in your book, Please Don't Come Back from the Moon, what I find interesting in in looking at it is that the women in it seem more resilient Mm -hmm. than the men. Now, the men that you look at are all the boys Mm -hmm. whose fathers have left, Um, Mikey and his cousin Nick and his friend Tommy. They're a little more brittle than their mothers who just seem to be, which isn't to say they didn't hurt, but they were moving forward. Yeah. But I think, you know, one of the interesting things about our culture and working class culture in particularly is that men put all their eggs in the career basket. And the men who leave in this book, a lot of them are out of work and don't have their livelihoods. They don't have that identity as provider anymore. And when those eggs break, all those eggs in that provider basket, men often are shell-shocked. They don't know what to do. Uh, some of the boys in the book don't know what they're going to do to be providers. And so there's this sort of post-industrial malaise that I think overtakes men because they, they so much identify themselves 100% with the role as provider. I think women are better at sort of understanding that there's many, li- many um, facets to one's identity. The women I know 
um, my mother and my sister and my wife and people I, uh, more acquaintances with, I've been really sort of impressed by they don't put all their eggs in their career basket. What they do for a living doesn't define them as much. They take more value, I think, out of their relationships, out of their friendships, out of their families and their homes, all sorts of different things that they see as part of who they are. And I think it's a lesson that a lot of us men can learn from women is that your career is simply what you're doing to pay the bills. And it doesn't really identify, it's not a huge part of your identity at the end of the day. Your friendships, your relationships, how you like to spend your time rather than how you have to spend your time is more important. I think the women in this novel certainly realize that they have to move on and do things they want to do. I'd like you to read, and the part I'd like you to read, actually, is when Mike's father leaves. Did I think my father was immune? My father was only human. How could he not leave? My father was in the driveway when I came riding up on my bicycle. Nobody else was home. It was a Saturday, and my mother and brother were out shopping. He was loading a few duffel bags and a box into the trunk of his Oldsmobile. He wore a blue Oxford shirt tucked into faded jeans, and he was red-faced and puffy-eyed. Dad, I said, standing at the edge of the sidewalk, where are you going? He stared back at me, squinting and tight-lipped, as if my head had suddenly burst into a ball of fire and the brilliant light was blinding him, as if my voice were the voice coming from a burning bush. He drove away at a crawl. His speedometer must have not even reached ten miles per hour, and every few seconds I could see him glance in his rearview mirror and then avert his eyes quickly, as if my head were still behind him, burning and flaring up into the sky. I stood alone in the driveway, throwing sycamore pellets down the wide, empty street. They sailed over the concrete and then bounced and landed, exploding into fluff like crashing birds. When my brother and mother came home from shopping, I said nothing. At dinner, my mother set out meatloaf, mashed potatoes, and gravy. She called my father. Roman, dinner. He didn't come. Kolya and I sat and watched each other waiting. Kolya, this is the little brother in the book, seemed to know the score. He didn't look worried or confused, just sad. My mother went to the fridge and took out a bowl of tossed salad, a bottle of Italian dressing, and a jar of pickles. Roman, she called, dinner, honey. She went back to the counter, got the salt and pepper shakers. She went to the fridge and brought out some butter and some slices of Wonder Bread. She called again. When he still didn't come, she went to the fridge and got mustard and ketchup, some leftover macaroni and cheese, some lunch meat that she arranged on a paper plate. She called again. She brought to the table a jar of beets, some olives, a bottle of vinegar, a jar of mayonnaise. Roman, come on, honey. Dinner. Her voice trailed around the house and floated up the stairs where nobody was waiting to hear it. She brought out honey, marshmallows, and chocolate sauce. She smiled. For dessert, she said. Kolya and I started eating. The meatloaf was getting cold. But Mom kept setting out food until everything in the fridge and freezer and pantry was on the table. I sat between a bag of frozen corn and a box of crackers. Kolya shoved aside a can of sliced peaches and drank from his glass of milk. He put a bag of frozen peas on his head, and we both laughed, and then felt bad for laughing. My mother left the kitchen and opened the door to the garage where my dad's car was missing. She looked at me hard for 15 or 20 seconds, then I nodded, and she left the room instantly. Kolya started to put the food back where it belonged, and I sat still and listened to our mother play her violin, Norwegian Wood and I Am a Rock in Penny Lane. Excellent. 
Dean Pacopoulos reading Please Don't Come Back from the Moon. That scene, that mother just having been at, at points where you just keep doing things to avoid having to confront what mm-hmm. you fear is inevitable. Yeah, I'm very interested in the moments that my characters and people in general, the people I know, the moments we hang in, the moments we're afraid to move on from because we know the consequences of doing so, what we're going to have to look at. And it's one of those things where your characters decide to do it almost on their own. It sounds sort of mystical, but frankly, when I was writing that scene, I didn't quite know where it was going, but I could not get those characters to leave that scene. I could not get them to acknowledge what was happening. And so I just, as a writer, started to have the mother unload the entire contents of the Smalee family fridge and pantry onto the table and realized that that was absolutely the sort of thing to do. They're at an emotional stalemate. They've been they've been paralyzed by what has occurred. There's a lot of moments of stalemate that happen in the book, and there's the tension between the town of Maple Rock and Ann Arbor, which mm-hmm. is close by, mm-hmm. and Mikey and his cousin Nick particularly, mm-hmm go to Ann Arbor a lot, and there's really that town-gown separation mm-hmm. that goes on there. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, if you grow up in southeast Michigan like I did, Ann Arbor, for a lot of us, especially those of us with bookish leanings or, or artistic leanings, becomes a sort of mecca. Uh, now there's a, a really rich uh, artistic culture flourishing in Detroit. But at the time, when the book is set in the early 90s, I don't think it was really on the map as much. And Ann Arbor seemed this incredibly sophisticated place to me growing up. And it does to Mikey and Nick in the book. It becomes a place of refuge, a place that is absolutely different than Maple Rock. The concerns of the people who live in Ann Arbor, at least the most visible people who live in Ann Arbor, um, are much different than the concerns of the people in Maple Rock. And there's a sort of escapism I've always felt in college towns living in one now in Ames, Iowa, where I live now. I've lived in Madison. I've lived in Ann Arbor. I've always been in this this feeling where I love it, but eventually I grow tired of it because I feel like I'm living somewhere that's not quite in tune with reality. And at first that's blissful, and then it starts to wear on me. Well, there are towns of possibility. It's true. My second novel is called My American Unhappiness, and it's very much about the possibility of a college town. It's set in Madison, Wisconsin. Right. It's the possibility, but not the realization. So it's easy to see why that would be seductive at first Mm -hmm. and then become a little tiring. One thing I find fascinating about college towns is you meet people that are doing interesting things, and eight years later, they're still doing the same thing and haven't quite wrapped it up yet. (laughs) And their PhD theses or their novels or their documentary films, and I love people involved in that sort of struggle. They're fun to be around. They're fun to have dinner with. They're fun to be friends and neighbors with. But it also sort of, for me, as as a novelist, has a very uh, working-class approach to my writing. It's sometimes hard because I want to shake people and say, you've got to finish it. You've got to get this book done, and you've got you've to move on. So it's an interesting place to live. I've I got to say, though, they are one of my favorite sort of places to be. You know, the other thing, Dean, I really appreciated about the book that you just don't see very often is the male friendships Mm -hmm. that are 
really profound. They these guys connect to one another. They're really friends. They're there for one another. Which isn't to say they don't make them make each other nuts at times. Right. But they're friends. And you don't see a lot of guys who are friends in books. Yeah, I think that's true. Male friendship is not explored um as well. I mean some of the great male friendship books are the young adult novels of S. E. Hinton, the old outsiders that's and right. That was then. This is now in Rumblefish. These great books that became movies in the '80s or be earlier even that I just loved as a kid when I got a hold of those S.E. Hinton novels. This book is rooted in reality, and I'm still in touch with five high school friends. I don't see them or communicate as much as I'd like to, but when we get together, it's like we never left. And I I realize how special that is. You know, my wife told me like that's rare. You don't see that five people have been friends since they were 12 are still that tight. And I have college friends like that in, in the town I live in, lived in for a while, Mineral Point. I had a group of friends like that. Friendships, uh, I've been blessed by those my whole life and have had a lot of interesting people come into my life. And uh, I try to nurture that. But nothing is uh, – Stephen King says something um, about friendship at 16. You'll never have friends like that again. Uh, I think that's especially true of boys. There's a certain scariness of coming into the world and realizing how tough of a place it can be on men. And you've got your troops. You've got your boys with you. You feel a little bit more powerful at 16 if you have that. And it's hard to break those bonds. You know, I take great reassurance that those guys are out there if I need them. (laughs) It sounds sort of like the mob, but it is this sort of (laughs) feeling that I know I could call on them and, and have them there. And I think Mikey and Nick and Tom in the book exemplify that and certainly the minor characters in this book are inspired by real life friends how autobiographical is this book you know there's a lot of elements in there there's a lot of details that are autobiographical i like to say it's an emotionally true book much of it's made up certainly mikey has uh more adventures with women than i ever had as a young man i think he he's has these the gift for attracting people to him because he has this longing in him as a as a character. But most of the book is derivative from the experiences of the places, the people I knew. But I wanted to infuse it with something more, and I wanted to, at one level, protect the identity of certain people and protect some of my family's own stories. But another level, I feel you can really get into the things you are passionate talking about when you stray from the script of reality, when you decide to say, this is what really happened, but the story is something deeper and to make the story metaphorical to make it something that appeals to more than the people in your social circle the people that know you you sometimes have to fictionalize and and add an element of myth i when i teach writing i talk about making your personal story an epic story uh, i think that is the key for first novels to figure out the way to take your personal story your personal hurts wounds memories joys and to make them epic and to tell a story that feels epic so that when readers pick it up, they feel, hey, this is something. This is part of our, our myth as Americans, and I want to be part of this. Why do you think we're at this, I think, kind of a loony point <laughs> of people claiming memoirs mm-hmm. that, in fact, are fictionalized? Why not call it a novel and be done with it? I don't know. I don't I don't quite understand it, though I do think I had friends like this, and I think it's something we all can fall prey to. You sometimes have a self-image of yourself that you start to believe. I think some of these people are really are delusional, and they start to convince themselves that this is really their story. You're generous. <laughs> and some of them are, you know, and some of them are, are crooks. They're shysters who 
decided that they would be more of a celebrity. And part of this is the celebrity culture, the reality TV culture. I mean, when people like Jessica Simpson or John and Kate plus eight, these people can be celebrities. Writers, young writers see that and say, what can I bear of my private life that will make me a star? And they decide that, well, I don't really have anything, but I'm a good writer, and I can probably create a persona that can make me famous as far as any literary author can ever be famous. But it's it's some delusion, it's some it's some crookedness, and it's this really at its core, this desire to be a celebrity like other public figures are. But that's not the writer's job. The writer's job is to, to let the, the books speak for themselves eventually. When did you start writing? I've always done it. I will say that uh, I did it badly for a long time. I wouldn't think that any of my high school teachers would have thought I would be a novelist. I wrote bad poetry about girls who broke up with me. You know, it was this <laughs> average teenage angst-ridden poetry. In college at the University of Michigan, where I really sort of started to do this seriously and decided that this is what I wanted to do, and I sort of made that announcement to my family that I was going to be a novelist and that when they asked me what my backup plan was, I didn't really have one, which I think terrified both of my parents. But they were fairly supportive. They were skeptical. But, you know, I tell my students now, so many of them want to be writers, and sometimes I meet their parents or you get an email from their parents, or they're very worried about these kids who want to grow up and, and, and be creative writers as a career. And I tell them, you know, this is a really freeing time in American culture because there are unemployed engineers, there are unemployed scientists, there are unemployed computer specialists. You might as well be unemployed because you tried to do what you loved and it didn't work out rather than be unemployed from a job you never really wanted in the first place. So I tell my students, you know, go for what you think you want to do. If it doesn't work out and you don't have a job, you're no different. It's no different to be an unemployed writer than it is to be an unemployed engineer. You need a plan B at that point. But if you're good and you have some talent, and more importantly, you have the drive, I tell my students to go for it. How did you move to writing full-time? How were you able to make that happen? Well, I, I did it for a while, and it was not easy, especially the cost of health insurance. But it was uh, 2006, I got a fellowship for the National Endowment for the Arts, which gave me a little cushion to start working in earnest on my second novel, which I was able to sell on a partial, a small portion of the manuscript, about 20 pages. So I got a little advance from my publisher, Harcourt, uh, I got an NEA fellowship, and then just when all hope started to be lost, where I uh, was living in a little town called Mineral Point, Wisconsin, which I loved, but I was pretty much out of money again, I got a Guggenheim fellowship. So that, coupled with foreign sales, film rights, a few magazine pieces, you know, I'm not picky about paid work, so I've, I've written for Men's Health and for Real Simple and the New York Times, and whoever else wants me to write, I will write for them, so... But in all honesty, the, the health insurance became almost impossible, and this is a struggle many working-class families have right now in Michigan. Um, and something that I struggle with as a self-employed writer, it was over 1000 a month to insure my family of four. Um, and I was lucky enough to get a tenure-track teaching job at Iowa State, which has been just a wonderful place for my family to have a father who can bring home the bacon but also spend time dreaming up stories. And, and, and I feel so lucky to be doing this in comparison with my grandfather, who paid for much of my education, who went to a factory and put dashboards in Mustangs for 30 years. You know, it's just, i under no delusion that when even when I have the struggles that any writer has financially, I'm still in an incredibly lucky position. You worked for CBS News. Mm -hmm. You were one of the writers for the 24-hour news. news service. Mm -hmm. Tell me how that helped your writing, or not. Mm -hmm. It did help my writing um, in the sense that it 
uh, taught me how to convey a lot of information quickly. And I see one of the problems a lot of beginning writers have is not knowing what sort of backstory to leave in and what to leave out and when to give details and when to, background information has to be in there. And when you're writing 30 to 60 second stories, eight sentences is the maximum you get to give to the anchor. Um, and you're cranking those out at the rate of 10 to 30 an hour, depending on how busy a news day it is. You learn pretty quick to write fast, to see what's important, and not to spend a lot of time in in expository writing. And And so one of the best compliments I get from readers is that they couldn't put it down it read quickly uh, i don't see that as an insult at all i mean i love short novels i love novels that move every so often i'll do a tolstoy war and peace but in general i like my novels to move at a pace that is exciting so i think i learned a lot of how to pace a narrative from radio yeah i picked the book up and i i read it in one day it was yeah. and i was happy yeah, to have I, spent the day doing that i hear that a lot uh, i like i like one day books i love that feeling it also fits most people's life, to be honest. People are usually juggling multiple jobs and multiple responsibilities and multiple things on the home front, and sometimes you get a day off to read, and you just want a book that feels complete and that you can get through it in a, in a rainy day on the couch. You just came back from L.A. You've been going back and forth a lot. What's going on out there? Uh, well, Lionsgate Studios, the television division, is option, Please Don't Come Back for the Moon, based on a television pilot that I co-wrote with a filmmaker named Julian Goldberger. And we are in the process of developing the show. We'll be taking it out to networks shortly. But it's been a real interesting education there, too. I've, I've actually enjoyed the work much more than I thought I would. A lot of novels, we go out to Hollywood with, dreams of making a lot of money in TV, thinking it's going to be selling out. But TV has become remarkably sophisticated with shows like Mad Men and Breaking Bad and Six Feet Under, shows with real characters and real narrative arc. And uh, it's a challenge to write. A good TV writer has to, needs all the same tricks a, a good novelist has. Well, the other thing is that I would think the collaborative nature mm-hmm is a real contrast to the solitariness Mm -hmm. that you have in creating a novel. But, of course, the control you have over in creating a novel is much more encompassing than you would in television. You have a lot of control with a novel. Your editor comes in pretty late in the process. Um, With television, it's more collaborative. You've got your writing partner, usually um, a couple producers in the mix early, other producers later. Sometimes your agent gives you notes. Um, You get a lot of notes, they call them out there, and uh, you get notes on your writing. I've seen so far a pretty light touch from everybody I've worked with, uh, and I've been able to control things at this point. That'll probably change. The collaborative nature of TV, though, has been really fun because... It's based on my first book, and so to see what other people interpret, the people and places of Maple Rock, Michigan, this place I conveyed, is exciting. And frankly, the audience. You know, my book did well for a first novel, but it's still a pretty small slice of uh, the public knowing anything about this story or who I am or anything like that. You can really tell a story on TV and reach a lot of people, and I think that it's exciting for a writer to have an audience just like it would be exciting for a musician or a dancer or a a visual artist to have a big audience. So uh, there is some vanity in it, you think. I worked really hard on creating this town, and I would like it to be in several million homes on Thursday nights. (laughs) The title, Please Don't Come Back from the Moon. Mm -hmm. Where'd it come from? It's a Charles Mingus jazz song, one of his less-known ones. He was a great jazz bassist and composer. And I got into him in college. It just seemed the thing to do to move to Ann Arbor and get into jazz. And uh, But... 
I was more struck by his titles than his music. I mean, I love his music, but I'm not really a jazz geek in the, the, the classic sense of the guy who knows everything Mingus ever did. But his titles were so evocative, and that one stuck with me because I remember seeing it and thinking, okay, if someone was on the moon, what could possibly be the circumstance that you would not want that person to come back from the moon? And I loved the sense of false bravado I felt in the title. Please don't come back from the moon. These boys have lost their father. It's explained as the fathers have gone to the moon, and they're saying, you know what, we're fine. We're doing this without you. Just stay away. And they say that throughout much of the book, but deep down there's also this this real longing. The abdication of fatherhood has, has really uh, racked this community and made it suffer, and the boys um, have this real sense that they're doing fine but underneath that title please don't come back from the moon if you could drop the don't at certain moments in the book you know that that's probably at the core of some of these boys' thinking that was novelist and 2006 nea fellow dean bacopoulos talking about his first novel please don't come back from the moon his second novel my american unhappiness comes out in paperback on july 3rd You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpt from Gentle Moon, written by Mark Kozilek, performed by Sunkill Moon. From the CD, Ghosts of the Great Highway, used courtesy of Jet Set Records. Excerpts from Darkness on the Edge of Town by Bruce Springsteen, performed live at the 2010 Words and Music Festival, at Fairleigh Dickinson University. Use courtesy of John Landau Management and the Words and Music Festival. Special thanks to Amy Stoles. The Artworks podcast is posted each Thursday at arts.gov, and now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, bluegrass mandolin player and klezmer clarinetist Andy Statman. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. Everybody's got something that they just can't face. Some folks spend their whole lives trying to keep it. They carry it with them every step that they take. Till one day they just cut it loose. Cut it loose or let it drag them down. Where no one asks any questions It looks too long in your face In the darkness on